Every song we've sung today is really wrapped around the idea of, of the message that uh, we've got today and for the next couple of weeks. And uh, I'm kind of excited about that, kind of get started on a brand new year with you and a brand new year uh, in my life. I know some people really make a big thing out of New Year's and you have all kind of resolutions. Other people, it's just sort of the next day. But wherever you are in that, I think it's a good time. I think it's a good time to get a, a fresh start and a new beginning. So that's what we're going to... Uh, to be looking at. Uh, before I do that, let me remind you of something. This is sort of a, just an idea for you because I'm learning this myself. Uh, when you give, and if you're a, a member here, a regular tender, I know a lot of you love to give, and God bless you. God, God really works through that. Um, I give online. That's been our pattern for the last several years. I love it because I sign up at the first of the year. Um, every month, Calvary comes to my bank and gets money, <laughs> and it's just really great because if I'm on vacation or, you know, those times when you look back at the end of the year and you think, well, that doesn't, that doesn't kind of match, you know, like I like to tithe and, and give to faith promise and other things, and you think, well, that doesn't match. Oh, that week we were gone or whatever. You just you kind of forget. It's not intentional. But if you do an online draft, they just come get it, you know. We just we actually drive over to your bank, and they give us a sack of your money. And, and it just works really beautifully. But what I think has to happen is, if you're doing that, you've got to re-sign. You've got to redo it, I think, every year in January. So you want to check that out. If you're like me and you do that, uh, I'll encourage you to go back and make sure that you're re-upped um, to, to give that way. That's just a convenient way. It doesn't work for everybody. Some people like, you know, the mail in the envelopes or to put it uh, in the plate as it comes around. I, why don't do all three? Just do it all. Yeah, I like that even better. Um, you know, there's a show that's real popular. I think it ended this past season called Breaking Bad. And it's really built around the idea or a new phrase because we are constantly inventing language and morphing the way that we talk and communicate with each other. And this little phrase, Breaking Bad, most of us understand. Some people don't. But what it is, it's when someone decides... You know, I'm, I don't want to fit in. I'm going to give up on the typical moral, uh, social norm, and I'm just going to go my own way, regardless of the ethics, regardless of the legality of it, regardless of my morals. I'm just going to believe it all. I'm breaking bad. And I think that we can see as romantic that is and as adventuresome as it is and it creates celebrities, whether fictional or real, uh, it, it doesn't end well. It doesn't, it doesn't end well. There's a principle that we see all throughout Scripture uh, and I think in our life. A good finish matters more than a good start. I've seen a lot of people start well I've seen people begin in ministry. Guys I went to college and I went to seminary with who are just fell by the way as we went along. I've known Christians who at one time were so committed and so passionate and just really loved Jesus. And now they're not there. They're not at that place. Maybe that's you. That was me at, at one point in my life. I just kind of fell away from it. I broke bad and stayed that way for, uh, for a while. A lot of people start well, but I don't know of a lot of people that finish well. I saw J.O. this morning. I tell him all the time, I said, you're my role model. You're my role model because now at this place in my life, 
I want to finish well. I want to make it all the way across the line, not just for now. And I don't want to just begin well or start well. I want to go all the way through. So, you know, at the beginning of the year, I thought uh, a lot of times guys like me, pastors will get up and, and they'll talk about how do you start a new year? Well, let's do this to get, to get really launched. What I want us to do is take a little different twist and think about how are we going to finish this year? Okay, how are you going to finish? Where are you going to be? What are you going to be like? What's your life going to be like at the end of 2014, next November and next December? Well, guess what? You're not going to decide that. You're not going to determine that next October, November, and December. It's now that you decide not just how you're going to get started, but where do you want to finish? Where do you want to finish? You ever try to get in shape, you know, and get ready for something, and maybe you've got a deadline coming up, a vacation or a cruise or a family reunion or a school reunion or something like that, you know, and, you, and it gets closer. And all of a sudden, like a week before it, you start doing, you start doing Atkins, you start <laughs> running, you start doing P90, you're doing all these things. And the thought is always, almost always, man, I wish I'd have started this two months ago. I don't have time. Listen, there's going to come a moment in your life you're not going to have time to pull yourself together, whether that's emotionally, physically, particularly spiritually. It's a matter of our life and and how we live and the decisions we make today. So today, what I want to do, we're going to begin a new series about that very topic, and I'm calling it Finish Strong. Uh, And I base this out of the book of 2 Timothy. Second um, Timothy is the last book that Paul ever wrote. And you get it? You get why I'm using Second Timothy? Because Paul finished strong. Paul wrote this in the year 66 A.D. while awaiting death in a Roman prison. Now, Paul had been in jail before, okay? Paul was the most famous Christian ex-con, you know, that you've ever known. Uh, he was always in and out of trouble, usually for the same things. Uh, But typically, he was, it was more like house arrest. He was able to live in a home. He was under guard, but he could receive visitors. He had most things kind of, you know, he he was okay. It wasn't great, but it was okay. Now, this final imprisonment is really different. He was kept in chains in a dirty, primitive, dark dungeon. He had no privileges, no comforts. And that's where Paul wrote 2 Timothy with the end in sight. He knew this was going to be his last letter. Last letter he would ever write. So for this reason, 2 Timothy, it's kind of this unusual book because it has this, it has a celebratory feel to it, this vibe of celebration and of, of victory to it. But at the same time, it also, uh, to, when I read through this, there's a note of sadness and of urgency. So it's just, it's by far, I think, Paul's most emotional letter uh, that he ever wrote, this last letter. In fact, near the end of the letter, he says this, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I kept the faith. Now, there is in store for me crown of righteousness 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all of those who long for his appearing. Paul said, I'm going to finish strong. I'm going to finish strong. He wrote these words. Like I said, it it has this sound of victory to it. But the details of his life don't look very triumphant. I mean, he's he's dying in prison. Most of his so-called friends have long abandoned him. And he is about to die, and he knows it all alone. I'm sure a lot of his critics and the people who didn't like Paul uh, were laughing about this. And, hey, Paul, what about that victory? All those things you said before, well, it doesn't look like you're going to have a real strong finish after all. What we learn from this apostle is that finishing faithful is finishing strong. And Paul couldn't see what he and his ministry was giving birth to and the life and the church and this, the, the, what a missionary, everything that he had accomplished, he wouldn't be able to see at that moment from that prison cell. But something beautiful was beginning. Folks, I've seen so many people not end well. And my heart is for you to finish well. For me to finish well at the end of this year for us to look back and know we're strong. We're strong. A few years ago, I think, I need to look this up, I need to Google it, but I'm pretty sure it was 2011 that the uh, New York Giants head coach, Tom Coughlin, used a video, he saw it on YouTube, uh, that he kind of wanted to motivate his team. If you remember... um, That was the year that the Giants, after a mediocre start, went on to win the Super Bowl. Uh, And I don't know if it's all because he just he showed this video, but it is how he began the season. I watched this and I thought, hey, that's pretty good. I want you guys to see this. So I'm going to show you this video um, uh, that he showed his team, and then we're going to go on and we're going to win. Okay, never mind. Just watch. Let's just watch this together. Each life travels at its own speed and carries its own meaning. When we will reach the end, none of us knows. So we run on until our seasons come to a finish. And what matters is not only how we reach that line, but why. I knew that she needed to finish. It's within her to finish. But it's purely determination which allows you to finish. 17 years ago, Jim Tracy came to San Francisco University High School, a small private school, to make coaching runners a career. In that time, he's built a dynasty, entering this season seven state championships, tied for most in California history. The very first day I say, Hey, this is the University High School cross-country team. It's purely your decision to be champions or to not. I'm a person who sees no need to fail when success is offered every day. Tracy ran 10 miles a day, nearly every day of his adult life. Until three years ago, 
I was out running one day, and my left foot started to make a slapping noise. And sure enough, that got worse and worse, and finally, the foot refused to lift itself at all, finally. And now I can't run at all. The foot was one of the first signs. Last spring, at 60 years old, Tracy received the diagnosis. He has ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, a fatal neurodegenerative condition. While his mind remains sharp, his muscles are shutting down. There is no cure. The doctors have said, you know, it can kill you very quickly, or it can take its time and just make your life miserable. This progression, you know, is, is bound to, you know, either ruin my life, you know, by making me completely unable to do anything, or just make my life hard enough to be a greater challenge. And I accepted the second one. I said, hey, it's not going to ruin it. It's just going to make it harder. And if it's a little harder, I can take it. Before this season began, against Tracy's wishes, school officials told the team about his disease. I was the first one to start crying. My fear was I didn't know how long he can, he can um, live with this disease. It just hit me that I couldn't imagine cross country without him, and that was tough. I definitely broke down in tears, and most of my teammates broke down in tears as well. I kind of realized like how much he meant to me and to the program and how hard it was going to be to see him like deteriorate over the season. You know, when you lose something and you lose it a little bit and a little bit and a little bit at a time, at some point you realize that it's not coming back. Because I've run a million miles. I've run a million hills. I live in San Francisco, this city of hills. but. If I, if I go down the slope all the way, I have a feeling I'm not getting back up. And I'll miss that. I'll miss the climb to the top. Tracy has never married. His runners are his children, his teams, his family. This fall, that family was determined to support him the simplest way it could, by winning. I mean, we're definitely representing the end of his coaching career. And that's part of the reason that we wanted to do well for Jim at State. The university team came to the final race of the season, the California State meet in Fresno in November, determined to win a record eighth championship. Just before the 3.1 mile race, the girls gathered around their captain, Holland Reynolds. Holland brought us all together and we huddled into a very close circle. It's just like, all right, guys, let's do this for Jim. Let's do it for Jim. Let's do this for Jim. Do it for Jim. That's the reason we were there. We just knew that we needed to do it for Jim as a team. For the 169 runners, the day was wet and unseasonably cold, and the race would be unlike any Tracy's team had ever run before. Shortly after the start, sophomore Jenny Callen fell at the 100-yard mark and was in last place. She got up past more than 150 runners and finished 16th. Junior Bridget Blum had never led a race before in her cross-country career. That day, for more than half the course, she led the pack. She crossed the line third. Senior Adrian Carrister, a star soccer player, had never run in a state final meet before. She finished 25th. Sophomore Lizzie Tierling, 
ran the fastest race of her life by more than a minute. She came in 36th. But a cross-country meet is decided by the combined finishes of a school's top five runners. And Holland Reynolds, the team's captain and Tracy's fastest runner, was still on the course with the championship on the line. I felt good until about two and a half mile mark. And at that point, I was in second place. All of a sudden, my breathing got faster and faster, and I slowed down. And I didn't really realize how many people were passing me. Finally, the athletes start coming in, okay? And I see Bridget, and I don't see Holland. And instantly, I knew there was something really wrong. In the final half mile of the course, Reynolds became dehydrated and disoriented, barely able to continue running. It's agonizing watching her. But no sooner gets about three yards from the finish line than she just pitches over and falls down. I don't remember collapsing. Oh boy, we about five meters. Hopefully she will get back up. But right after I collapsed, an official came over to me and he let me know that if I wanted to finish the race, I had to either get up and walk through or crawl through, but he couldn't help me right then or else I'd be disqualified. 10 feet away from the line, Reynolds began to crawl. I do remember looking at the ground and hearing everyone around me. Such a courageous effort trying to cross that finish. It never occurred to me that I wouldn't finish. You need to finish, because that's the point. Reynolds was university's fifth and last official finisher. She crossed the line in 37th place. She was immediately taken to an ambulance and treated for dehydration. Less than an hour later, her teammates told Reynolds she clinched Tracy's eighth state championship when she crawled across the line. Made him proud to be a coach on our team and to have girls that really care about him and will go to any efforts to do well for him. That's definitely, I think, worth way more than a medal. Um, just that knowledge that you're responsible for making his last season a great one. She'd never dropped out before. She'd never let the team down, ever, you know? So, the need to finish is great. It's like me, I have a physical problem, but I'm not gonna let it stop me from getting somewhere. I'm not gonna make it to the finish line unless we consider death the finish line, but uh, she got there. Maybe what matters is not only how we reach the line and why, but who crosses that line with us. I don't care if next December, if you're running at full speed, if you're walking, or if you have to crawl across the finish line, I want you to finish strong. Finish strong. And I think in order to do that, um, we have to think about what we do next. Timothy was Paul's protege. 
His father was Greek. His mother was Jewish. He was young. We think he was probably a little introverted, kind of timid. But he was the leader of the church in Ephesus, which meant that he was the overseer of a number of house churches, community groups, and just the movement there. He had also spent time in prison and would again and would eventually be martyred in about A.D. 90. Second Timothy is Paul's final farewell to the churches that he had served and that he had really given birth to. It also contains some last-minute instructions to these young disciples on how to be effective, how to live a bold and energetic and successful and powerful spiritual life. In chapter 1, Paul shows us that there are three bad attitudes that we need to abandon in order to finish strong. These are three things that that have the power to to hold you back from living the life that God's called you to live in 2014. Uh, I think we need to develop three counter-attitudes in their place. So let's take a look at those. Because I really believe if you can just embrace these three attitudes... This year is going to look different than any year you've had so far. Really believe that. The first attitude we adopt is this. No more fear. Would you say that with me? No more fear. In verse 7, Paul said, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power of love, and of self-control. There are three different words for power that I know, and one is this one. It's, it's the word dunamis. It's the word we get our word dynamite from. And I really like it because it reminds me that God has this, and he will give us explosive power to break through our biggest fears. Some of you have lived this past year in fear. You've come out of a bad situation or a hurtful place and and, and you feel wounded and and you're afraid to go forward and that rules you Paul says that that God has given us a spirit of love and you remember what the apostle John said he reminds us that it's perfect love that casts out fear and he said that God has given us a sound mind It, it could be translated sound judgment And this is what I'm figuring out, is that God gives us the ability to outthink our fears. And we need this because we're so prone to irrational fears. And if you could step back, and one day, and hopefully this will be the year, that you look back on the things that have made you afraid in in 2013 and 12 and 11, and you think, why was I so afraid of that? And I let myself be dominated by that. We fear everything. I mean, we fear failure, (laughs) but we fear success. We fear being alone, but we feel being trapped in a relationship. We fear poverty, but we fear the responsibilities that comes with affluence. We fear sickness, but we fear what it will mean if we try to make healthy life choices. We fear change, but then we're afraid that things are never going to be any different than they are now. We fear missing out on something good, but we fear making the decisions that will give us really a better life. Whatever it is, (laughs) we fear it. We're afraid of it coming and going. And the truth is, is that God does not want you to live in fear anymore. He wants you to live a life that's defined by freedom and power and love and a sound mind. 
and just peace. How do we get there? Well, there's a hint in verse 6. Paul says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame uh, the gift of God, which is in you. It's in you. It's already in you through the laying on of my hands. Fan it into, the, into a flame. Paul is saying, you might, you know, what, what we, how we fight fear is with fire. And I've discovered that when I lose my passion, when I let that fire go out, then I start yielding to fears. There's a connection there. When my passion, when the flame for the Lord goes out, I start getting scared of stuff. I start getting timid about things. And the more I neglect fanning that flame, the more I yield to worry and to anxiety. This can go on and on and on in your life until your life will become defined not by who you are and not by what God made you to be, but by what you're afraid of. There's things you're avoiding. There's places that you're just scared of. Do you know what fear leads to? It it, it leads to indecision, right? I mean, when you're scared, when you can't think, you think, I'm just, I'm not, and we put it off and we, we begin to procrastinate. Fearful, timid people are afraid to decide because we don't want to take any risks. We're afraid to do anything. Well, I know what happened last time, and it, that could happen again, so I'm just not going to do it. I'm just, I'm just not going to go there. I want you to break through fear and indecision. Keep that gift that is within you white hot. And I'm talking about every gift that, that God's given you, the gift of your relationship with Jesus, the gift of your marriage, Uh, Keep it on fire. The gift of your job, the gift of the the life calling that God's put on you, keep it hot. Do whatever it takes to keep your passion for living the life that that God's given you just in a a white-hot flame. If you want to finish strong, say no to fear. Say yes to the fire of God in your life. And here's the second attitude I think we've got to adopt. We say no to fear, and then no more shame. You say that with me? No more shame. Paul uses the word ashamed four times just in this one chapter. In verse 8, he says, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. In verse 12, he says, But I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, And I'm convinced he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. Verse 16, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Hey, if you haven't figured this out by now, uh, you will. There's always going to be people who look down at you with contempt, with judgment, with condensation, that there's a condensation, that there's always those who are going to try to make you feel ashamed. Always. About what you are, about what you do. Don't give them that power anymore. Don't be paralyzed by what other people might think about you or what they might say about you. Don't be ashamed to take a stand. 
And this happens on lots of levels. Some of you just coming off Christmas and you're thinking, I love my mama, but oh, she always makes me feel ashamed. <laughs> you know, She's always saying these little remarks or these little things. Or you're thinking about you had to see your ex during the holidays and they just, they try to create shame in you. I mean, there's just all these people. Your boss does this. Your manager. Your, I mean, it just goes on and on, right? And we, we give these people that power. Don't be paralyzed. And don't be ashamed to take a stand. Now, here's the third attitude we have to adopt. No more fear. No more shame. No more regrets. Will you say that with me? No more regrets. Uh, you probably know who Kiefer Sutherland is. Uh, he was the star of 24, which was, like, huge... Uh, but now, he's, I know he's doing other things, but he is on television, he's advertising tequila these days. Have you seen the commercials? And I saw one in a print magazine. And the campaign goes uh, something along the lines like this. And I may not get it exactly right, but that's probably good. You probably don't want to walk out thinking, wow, that's odd that my pastor knows a lot about tequila. Uh, but here's, here's what it says. Um, have an adventure, have a story, just don't have any regrets. Well, if you really don't want to have any regrets, my advice, <laughs> okay, you see where I'm headed with that. Just, just leave tequila completely, you know, out of the equation, okay? Because if I remember right, <laughs> tequila and regrets just go hand in hand, okay? That's all I'm going to say about that. And, you know, we've all got regrets. We've all made mistakes, We've all done some of the most incredibly dumb things, self-destructive things uh, in our life. We've all hurt somebody close to us. But yesterday's mistakes need not hold us back today. Some of you are living under yesterday. And it's like it's got you in chains and you're in bondage to it. Let's look at what Paul said. In verse 3, he said, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. Now, if you look back at the life of Paul, you would say, you have a clear conscience? Really? Weren't you the, weren't you the one driving Christians out of their homes and burning their houses down and, and even putting some of them to death? I mean, how could a guy like you, and you were a Pharisee, and you were so religious and so stuffy, and how in the world do you think you could have a clear conscience. Because the word translated clear can also be translated cleansed. Hey, we have a clear conscience because through Jesus, we have a clean conscience. Because of what Jesus did for us through his death on the cross, our sins are forgiven. It's washed away. Our conscience is cleansed. Our past is wiped clean. Do you know that I remember more of my sin and my mistakes than God does? And God is saying, I'm just going to take authority to tell you this. God is saying, hey, I've forgotten about it. It's time you forgot about it. In fact, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This maybe is a verse you need to memorize right here at the beginning of the year. He says, therefore... If anyone, and since anyone, if you are, you've you got to go back and make sure you are, in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old is gone. The old is gone. The new has come. There's a couple of different words for new in the New Testament, and one means new, the same kind of thing, but new. Oh, I got a new car. Oh, is it different from your other car? No, it's the same kind. It's just new. You know, it's just a, it's the same. It's a car, four wheels, the whole thing. It's just new. Now, there's another word for new, which means new, and it's something different. It's of a different kind. You remember how when you were a kid, we thought by this time in life we'd all be flying around like George Jetson, you know, that we wouldn't even have cars anymore, and we wouldn't have to drive them. We'd just get in and sit back and, you know, drink your coffee on the way to wherever. That would be new. And that's what Paul's talking about. He goes, you're not the same thing anymore. You're new. You're different. You're not just improved. You're not just, you know, brushed up and, you know, upgraded. And it's same old you, but, you know, you're, you're better than you were. That's not the idea at all. He's saying, you're something different. Because Christ is in you, and it's his life being lived through you. It's not even you anymore. That old guy's dead. It's new. And he says, the old, he says don't you get this? The old's gone. It's gone. Now, what the enemy's going to do is keep bringing those memories up. He's going to keep bringing those images up. And he'll make sure. He'll place people in your life. Uh, I remember one Christmas... Uh, we had said the blessing, and we were talking, and my dad all of a sudden just blurts out. He goes, well, I know your, your dad's living for God now, but he wasn't always like that. I think that's how he talked. Uh, I think, why would you say that? He goes, I remember one time, and I thought, oh, that's why, because you're setting up stories. And he started telling them stories. One time, your daddy, of course, my kids are leaning in going, yeah, <laughs> what? he did that? And he told this story. One time, and it's a, it a harmless mistake and just a big misunderstanding that I threw a chair through the kitchen window. <laughs> I think it had something to do with tequila. I don't know. But I did. And, you know, my dad and I said, oh, no, don't tell that. I'm so full of shame. I'm so regret that. And I'm so embarrassed about that. I don't want you to know. And you see how the enemy will do that. He will bring up old junk out of your life and try to convince you that that's still who you are. You're not her anymore. You're not him anymore. He said, it's gone. That's gone. No more regrets means that we choose to leave the past in the past at the foot of the cross. And you don't visit them anymore. No more regrets attitude. No more looking back. The Apostle Paul said this. This is Philippians 3. And I know it's familiar, but it's powerful because we're thinking not just about the beginning of the year, right? We're thinking about the end of the year. We're thinking about the end of 2014. Here's what he said. One thing. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Someone forget that stuff. It's not me anymore. A friend of mine caught up to me after years and he goes, I heard you were a Christian. He said, and that was something, you know, to hear that. He goes, then I heard you were a pastor. <laughs> Uh, and he just thought, well, is that true? You know, and I could tell what he was doing. like, wow, that's so weird. And I, thought, I know it's weird. I said, it's still weird for me. But that was somebody different. Somebody new. You're somebody new. And if you've never made that decision, you've never stepped over that line to give your life to Christ, I just want you to know you can start this year by becoming somebody, 
Somebody new and fresh and different and forgiven and clean. That's what Jesus does. He just wants to give you freedom. He just wants to give you love. He wants to take away the shame. He wants to take away the fear so that there'll be no more regrets. In this text today, Paul goes on. He said uh, in verse 8, But join with me in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. No more regrets. Do you look back on this year and you think about it and you think, ooh, I kind of regret that? I know that some of you are going to look back at the end of this year and you're going to have regrets. Some of you are going to start a habit. And it may, and it may just begin with some little thing. And you're going to think, ah, by the end of the year, you're going to think, ah, this has got me. And I, I, can't, I don't know how to let go of this. It's going to be a chemical. It's going to be food. It's going to be sex. It's going to be something that's going to... And you're going to have regrets from that. Some of you are going to start an affair this year. You're close to it already. You're leaning in that direction already. And it's going to ruin and wreck your life. You're going to have regrets. I, mean, I could just go on. Some of you are going to make a bad business decision. You're going to trade in your ethics for uh, financial gain. At the end of the year, you're going to have regrets. Hey, I'm just warning you because I, I love you. Uh, no more regrets means that instead of living in the past, we live in the present. We live now, and our focus is on God who, who wants to be in us, and he wants to live through us today so that we don't have any regrets tomorrow. No fear, no shame, no regrets. No fear, no shame, no regrets. Will you say that with me just one more time? No fear, no shame, no regrets. It comes down to letting Jesus be Jesus in us, keeping him front and center in our life every day, 2014. It means that you allow nothing to steal your passion for Christ. You keep it alive. It means you allow nothing to compromise your loyalty. You keep him first. It means that you allow nothing to sabotage who you are in Jesus. Keep your eyes on the prize. With those attitudes, I promise you, you're going to finish strong. And this is going to be your year. This is your year. This is God's year to do something brand new in and through you.